I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Kat Breezley. Kat, welcome to the podcast. Now, you're a mineralogist, right? Uh, What is a mineralogist? How do you define that? So mineralogists look at the minerals that make up rocks. And this can be on all scales from atomic down to which elements are in the minerals and all the way up to macro scales, looking at deposits and why the elements are where they are. And uh, what level in your career are you at? So I'm a first year PhD student and it's really exciting because I'm finally being allowed to direct my own research at the moment. So I'm just reaching into what I want to do, which is great. It's always nice when you get to run your own shop. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. So you're doing your PhD. Were your master's and undergrad degrees in uh, mineralogy as well? Uh, No, actually. I've had a bit of a changing career over the past five years. So I originally started my undergrad degree at the University of St Andrews in Scotland. And what I thought was a geography degree going in actually turned out to be a geology degree by some mistake of my own. But I sat down in the first lab of the year and was presented with a bunch of rocks. And from then on, I really fell in love with geology over time. And yeah, that's what really directed me into a PhD in geology at UBC. How do you accidentally sign up for a a geology course? Was it just the names or? So it was called environmental earth science. And all throughout high school, I was really into physical geography. So I thought they were similar degrees, but I'm very glad about this happy mistake I made when I was about 17, signing up because it led me to where I am now. That'll go down well in this department. There's a bit of a turf war between geology and geography. (laughs) They always get confused. So it's nice that we uh, won over a good one. (laughs) Have you ever made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Um, So I don't currently have anything that is being published in the works, but I have discovered a few exciting things during my time at UBC. Um, I was in a team who were the first people in the world to visualize lithium silicates in three dimensions using x-ray computed tomography. And that was really exciting. And um, throughout my studies, Over the past six months, I found new minerals which have never been identified before within my deposit, the tankopegmatite in Manitoba. And even just today, about 20 minutes ago, I finished up performing my first ever single crystal analysis of what is potentially a new mineral, which is really exciting. Wow. Discovering a new mineral. Do you get to name it? Oh, (laughs) I... If it is a new mineral, which we don't know yet, I think I'm going to leave that honor up to Lee, my supervisor, because he knows a lot more geologists and he'll definitely have better advice on naming than I would. So that's got to be a big deal, like making the cover of all the geological magazines. Oh, maybe. I'm not sure. 
Um, it would be really exciting if something does come of it, but this wasn't a sample I found myself. It was um, a sample that was sent by Ian Graham in Australia to my supervisor, Lee Grote, and I've had the honor of analyzing it. So that's been really fun looking into geological backgrounds that I'm not really familiar with and are so different from my current research. It's always good. It's always fun to um, get different perspectives and see what other people are doing that has nothing to do with what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. You touched on this, but what are you working on right now? What's your uh, thesis about? So my thesis is focused around lithium in igneous rocks. And I work on the tankopegmatite in Manitoba. And more specifically, I look at the mineralization, remobilization, and the effects of metasomatism on the lithium minerals within the pegmatite. And this is really important as it'll not only help the mining company better target this lithium, but it also have effects on other deposits around the world. And why do we care about lithium? Oh, lithium is just great. And it is really important for our sustainable future as its main use is in lithium batteries, which are rechargeable and much better for the environment than conventional fossil fuels. And these critical elements are found in brines or in hard rock pegmatites, which I look at. Now that you mentioned it, I'm probably recording you with a lithium battery right now. <laughs> <laughs> so exciting to see real life applications of what I'm studying. <laughs> <laughs> it's very meta. <laughs> uh, do you do any fieldwork? I'm very lucky in the fact that I get to do many months of fieldwork each year. And just this past summer, I got to go out to the pegmatite that I'm studying in Manitoba. And I also got to be a field assistant on two projects in Revelstoke, which is really fun. And I have at that point, I'd never been to Canada before, so seeing the terrain and going in a helicopter for the first time was really exciting. And I'm very looking, very much looking forward to my next six months, which will probably all be in the field. Summer fieldwork in Manitoba. Um, I grew up there. How many mosquito bites did you, did you get? <laughs> oh, so many. But <laughs> I think the mosquitoes were definitely my downfall on that trip. As growing up in Scotland, the only flies we had were midges, and I've never really been bitten by mosquitoes before. And yeah, I think that was very much a downside to the fieldwork, but it was still really great, if not boiling hot and very humid. Yes, that's the other uh, challenge, <laughs> the heat and the humidity. Yeah, it reached up to 42 degrees in the core shack I was working in. So that was a big change, but it was still really great and a really fun experience. That sounds familiar. <laughs> I'm always curious, uh, when people do field work abroad and then come to Canada, how is it different? Okay, so my field work during my undergrad and master's was primarily focused in Europe. And I did do one excursion to Death Valley to do some mapping, but I would say the biggest difference is the wildlife. So in the UK, your biggest threat is probably the rain that's gonna get you in the miserable weather. But here, there's so much dangerous wildlife that I've never come across before, like bears. And it's something you really need to be aware of. And 
I was very lucky to be trained in bear safety before I came. And my supervisor has so much experience with this sort of thing. So I've never felt unsafe in the field, but it's definitely something to take into consideration. And what's field like uh, back home? Field work in Scotland is very character building, I would say. Um, you do have to put up with the wind and the rain and the cold temperatures. And I think it's very good. And all geologists should be trained in a variety of field work because it's not always sunshine and happiness, but you, it really teaches you how to persevere in bad conditions. So I, I'm very glad I went to uni in Scotland and got that experience. Fieldwork does seem to be very character building and it seems like crazy things happen when you're working in the field. Uh, do you have any crazy field stories that you'd care to share? So I do have a few field stories and maybe the first one I can talk about was one of my undergraduate field trips and my environmental class went on a field trip to Spain to Rio Tinto to look at the mining remediation and the VMS deposits there, Sorry, volcanic VMS? massive sulfide deposits, <laughs> which are essentially just um, uh, volcanoes on the seafloor which mineralize metals. But anyway, on the last day of the field trip, all of us were walking along it was a glorious day, the sun was shining, and I was at the front of the group with my friends, and there were about 20 of us. And we were just walking along, and all of a sudden, my friend seizes up. And we get really concerned, because we're not sure what she's doing. And it turns out there was a bee in her hair, and we all just tried to get the bee out of her hair, and it was fine. And then all of a sudden, all of us were surrounded by bees and there was a huge swarm and we did the absolute worst thing you can do in that situation. And we panicked and all started running in different directions. And I, of course, get stung about 20 times just on my left arm alone. And I picked out all of the stingers, <laughs> counting them. And the best part was we were talking to our guide at the end and he was like, oh, I knew there were bees in the area, but I didn't think there were that many. I was estimating about three stings per person, which was really reassuring. <laughs> Why did he let you go in the area if you knew there were bees? I don't know. We were trying to get to some mine tailings up the valley, but I... I'm not sure if it's just a much more common thing in Spain to have huge beehives everywhere, but I had not come across that before. <laughs> oh, I think I'll take the bears over the bees. <laughs> Any other sto stories you'd care to share? So my second story is based in Death Valley in America. And it really highlights the delirium you go through when you're in the field in a remote location for extended periods of time as a geologist. So me and my friend both had to pick a location in the world to do our mapping project. And our supervisor, Tony Prave, recommended the Alexander Hills in Death Valley. Now, this is a fairly remote location and we didn't see a single person the whole time of the trip up until a certain point. But anyway, we got very comfortable with one another and we're still best friends to this day. 
and the delirium really set in about three weeks into the trip. And because it was such a remote area, we didn't have any phone service and we weren't allowed to work together on this project. That was the only rule we were given. So across this rugged terrain, we found the best way to communicate with each other is making animal noises. So we would just do hawk calls or any animal like that across each other and across the mountains at each other, essentially just screaming to make sure the other person was okay. And that was all going great. It was a great method until one day I was standing on top of a rock doing the loudest hawk impression I think I'd done the whole trip. And just to my luck, a whole field school of Johns Hopkins geologists walk around the corner and see me acting like a complete lunatic on the rock, probably looking very, very crazy and by myself. <laughs> and they all look very concerned. And yeah, we sorted it out afterwards, but I don't think they ever thought I wasn't completely insane. <laughs> of course, one day, years from now, you'll be at a conference and one of the, those classmates will uh, will recognize you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, I will be ashamed to be known as the hawk girl, but I guess it just touches on how crazy you get during fieldwork, but in a good way. The hawk doctor. Yes, let's go with that. You'll, you'll be finished your PhD by that point. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Now, you're clearly very excited about your work. Um, I can see your passion for fieldwork, but also uh, you're excited about your lab work. Uh, you make even lab work sound fun. <laughs> so what's the best part about your work? I really like how varied my workload is. So I'm very lucky that I get to work on many, many projects at once. So it isn't just a tankopegmatite. I get to do some drill core logging for companies. I get to work on other pegmatites around Canada. For example, I'm going to the O'Grady Batholith this summer in the Northwest Territories. And I get to collaborate with other research groups around the world. For example, I'm collaborating with Oxford University on a thermodynamics project at the moment. And I just really love getting into all aspects of igneous geology. And I think it's giving me a really strong background and teaching me so many skills having all of these projects. That's great. <laughs> By the way, I always hear this word pegmatite. What on earth is a pegmatite? So pegmatites are really coarse-grained igneous rocks, and they represent some of the final stages of crystallization. And there's a bit of a debate whether these pegmatites are formed by anatexis or late-stage metamorphism, which causes melting, or whether they form solely from these large igneous intrusions coming through the crusts and are the final crystallization products of that. So yeah, just really large minerals and they often concentrate critical metals, which is why I'm working on them. So you're saying there's debate as to whether or not they're igneous or sediment or um, metamorphic rocks? There's a bit of a fine line in geology between whether anatexis is very, very late stage metamorphism or igneous products but 
Um, they're definitely igneous rocks, but just the origins of the pegmatites are highly debated, I would say. When I teach um, rocks to children, I often like to teach um, metamorphosism as being like baking a cookie. And you can either underbake your cookie, you can bake it the right amount of time, or you can burn your cookie. And it sounds like you've got some burnt cookies there. Yeah, burnt to the point where the cookies are molten, I would say. <laughs> now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? Yeah, so I think a skill that I've really had to adapt over time is time management. And I would say that's a really important skill for everyone to learn. And it used to be really challenging for me to manage my time in a way that I had a life outside of my research. And it's really important. And I think it's a pretty good thing to learn. That's great. And I think that's important for anyone in every field to, to know about. But I've got to say, a PhD student who um, struggles to have a life outside of their work, um, I think you're in good company. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, a communal struggle. <laughs> Do you uh, identify as belonging to any underrepresented uh, communities? And if so, has that affected your studies in any way? So... I have an autoimmune disease and over the course of my lifetime, a drug has been developed that allows me to be a fully functioning, happy human being. And at one point in my life, I thought it was going to be impossible for me to become a field-based geologist because of my disability. But I am so happy for these scientific advances. And now I don't think anyone would be able to tell that I really struggled with my health from a young age. And I think that is an area of geology that could be improved upon because field-based geology isn't very accepting of disabilities in general. And I think that's one of the major downfalls of geology. But um, as I said, I'm very, very lucky, very grateful for scientific advances and I'm doing what I love. So I'm very happy. <laughs> that's amazing. How long ago did that drug come about? Oh, um, I went on it when I was about 16 and I was diagnosed when I was seven years old. So it was a really long period of time where I had to kind of rein in my career aspirations because I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do anything. So it really changed my life. Wonderful. And now, I mean, yeah, you could take me in a match <laughs> for sure. Further to that, do you feel that uh, mineralogy as a whole is really um, open and welcoming or is it more closed off and um, they look after their own? I would say it is very welcoming to people who are inside geology. I found it was kind of difficult to sink into geology to begin with as it can be quite an expensive field to get into initially. And in Scotland, everyone has free university tuition paid for by the government. And I am not sure if I would be able to be in this position if I didn't have that. So getting into an undergraduate degree is very difficult. And I know there are lots of amazing scholarships available for people, which I highly recommend everyone to apply to. But 
other than that, I think geology is really welcoming to people who work hard and look for opportunities. I think you're the second person who's brought up that uh, financial barrier that a lot of people face. Um, and it's something that we don't often think about, but it's very, very important and a very real barrier. Yeah, even with field schools costing students, that can be a barrier for people having gotten into university and then finding out you have to pay more on top of that to join your peers doing field work. It's a shame and I'm sure there is a solution, but it, yeah, I think it's something that people need to consider. One barrier that we've all faced uh, this past year or past two years now has been the pandemic. Um, how has COVID impacted your work or has it? Um, I don't think COVID has impacted my PhD so far, but my master's was heavily impacted. I initially was planning to go to Namibia to do a mapping project, which was fully funded and I was really excited, but of course it was canceled. So I had to move to a computational dissertation, but seeing the silver lining in all of this, I really got to learn Python coding during that time, which was just invaluable and really great, I think. Where in Namibia were you supposed to go? Oh, it was in Northern Namibia, but it was, it was cancelled fairly early on, so I didn't get my hopes up. <laughs> we have a ton of specimens from there, from the Sumeb region. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> They're just beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to look at them. Now, you've made um, mineralogy sound really exciting. Um, if anyone's listening right now, what background or experience or, or even courses would you recommend that they pursue to follow in your footsteps? So I would put a strong emphasis on learning computational skills as well as field skills, because it's all fine and dandy if you can go into the field, make a great map. But if you can't do anything with it when you come back to research, then you're kind of stuck. So I'd really recommend learning um, at least ArcGIS, Leapfrog Geo, if you're wanting to go into economic geology, and learning a coding language such as Python or R, because uh, we're really transitioning to a coding-based scientific field, and it's so important to have a background in that. Now, you've been really inspiring today. Um, and yeah, you've painted a great picture of your work, but I'm curious, who inspired you while you were doing your studies? So I would say my biggest inspirations have been my three supervisors for my PhD, uh, Lee Grote, Tanya Martins, and Robert Linnan. Lee is just the most enthusiastic guy I've ever come across in geology, and he always gives me these opportunities which I can take and thrive with. And Tanya was so welcoming when I came to Canada and I stayed in her house at Manitoba and she was just really, really inspirational to me. And Bob is just a fountain of knowledge and ideas and I can go to him and ask him any question and he'll never make me feel bad about asking, which is so important to me. And yeah, I just think I'm in a really good standing with my supervisors. That's wonderful. It's, it makes the world of difference to have a really uh, supportive 
advisory community? Oh, it so does. Having approachable supervisors who you can just talk to is so important. Uh, just prior to the interview, you mentioned that the area that you're looking at in Manitoba is one of the largest lithium mines in Canada or... Yeah, so the Tanko Pegmatite is the only current lithium mine in Canada. So it's really important for this critical metals. I find that the world is changing at a breakneck speed these days, and especially careers um, or the fields that, that we're working in uh, can be completely unrecognizable by the time that uh, we retire. Um where do you see mineralogy going and what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of those changes? I, I'm seeing new techniques being put out every single day. For example, powder x-ray diffraction is moving in so many directions that now we can even analyze the structure of minerals from the powders themselves. So you don't need to produce these tiny crystals anymore for single crystal analysis. So just keeping up with the times is so important. And I really recommend anyone looking to go into mineralogy to be very diverse in their skill set so they can adapt to this fluctuating field, not just focusing on one thing, but learning about multiple deposits, multiple techniques. So we can really adapt to the fluctuating demands of materials and minerals. That goes back to what you said about loving, um, or the part that you love the most about your work. Uh, you do diverse work, so you need diverse skills. Yeah, it's very true. So you can just go into all aspects of economic geology and just follow what's available and what interests you at the time without being held back. Now for yourself, um, again, you're at the beginning of your career, but uh, you've got a long career ahead of you. What would you like to be the legacy of your career when you retire? I think eventually I'd like to be a professor who puts out world-class research. And at the moment, I have the privilege of supervising two undergrads for my research group, Elizabeth and Max. And that's really taught me how much I love supervising people in this field and just encouraging them. So I would love to impact as many young scientists as I can and encourage them into this amazing field. That's wonderful. That's a very mature response. I find that when I ask people at the beginning of their career what they want to have as their legacy, they usually have something very tangible, um, you know, X number of papers or an impact on the field. Uh, people at the end of their careers usually say uh, that it's the people that they will have inspired. So, uh, yeah, you jumped to the end of your career already. <laughs> um, I usually ask profs this, but I'll ask you, uh, what do you look for when you're looking for uh, students to mentor? How do you choose which students you want to take on? I think, especially with Elizabeth and Max, they're just so enthusiastic to learn. And anything I offer to teach them, they are so interested and always asking more questions. So I think enthusiasm is really key. And they both took the initiative of contacting me first. And that actually raises a really important point of if you don't ask, you don't get. And I didn't mention this earlier, but I've never applied for a posted position before. 
So I've got all of my opportunities just from reaching out via email to people and it can open up a world of opportunities. I got a research placement at Stanford University just from emailing a professor I'd never met before. I got a job at a mining company in the UK and it's so great to just ask because what's the worst that can happen? They say no when you move on. I've been shocked by the power of asking. Um, you feel awkward and you feel silly uh, five minutes after you send the email and then it comes back with the best possible response most of the time. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. Yeah, just having the confidence to reach out is very good. <laughs> That's great advice. <laughs> well, Kat, those are all my questions. Uh, is there anything you want to add or anything I forgot to cover before I let you go? I don't think so, but thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for coming. Thanks for sharing your passion and your knowledge and um, telling us about your research. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.